I ask you to think with me about a subject, at least at the outset, which needs no reminder. We understand that tomorrow is the last major holiday of the year and one to which so many have looked forward maybe for even a year now. In fact, as children especially look forward to tonight, and all of us as well, perhaps to the gatherings of our family, to the warmth and peacefulness which so often may be presented by a smile on this time of the year, might we spend at least a few moments this afternoon and study just a little bit more about what the Bible says about Christmas. As we consider that perhaps in more detail, however, we quickly will reach a rather remarkable conclusion. And that perhaps will be certainly nothing shocking, but let me ask you to note the following by way of introduction. Christmas has a significance that in fact goes into many different areas. So much so that whether one considers it economically, whether one considers it from a perspective of family gatherings, or whether one considers it from a perspective of national interest, Christmas is very significant. There are those economists who will inform us that a significant amount of our economic basis, at least in retail, has its basis or fundamental character at Christmas. There are others who, of course, will approach it from other perspectives, the point being that for many people, Christmas is a special time. It may be that in our midst today, many of us are thinking or perhaps already made plans to gather with family members either tonight or tomorrow, maybe both, and maybe on some instances more than once. It could be that that's a time of year when, perhaps no other time, but that one, a gathering like that takes place. Either of those considerations might be such that it is easily seen that this time of year is one for which there does seem to be an added note of well wishes, an added note of extension of happiness, or at least well thoughts on the part of another. Sometimes in our remark of that, we wonder why that's not all year long that way. But it does seem that the minds and thoughts of some do turn more toward thoughts of happiness in that way than at other times of the year. Of course, our interest is not so much what men may think about Christmas. What we'd like to know is, if we're going to discuss it from a biblical perspective, is what does the Bible say about it? Does the Bible describe it in ways that we're accustomed to seeing? If not, then in what other way is it described? Sometimes you and I may have opportunities to share with others when questions about common events like Christmas arise. It is for that reason I thought this afternoon that we might look briefly at the thought of Christmas. The very word itself, of course, has as its first six letters, Christ. There's no question, in fact, no secret that Jesus is the central figure of Christmas, at least in the manner in which it's presented. And what's more, that his idea, his life, his birth in particular, formed the ultimate basis which led to the existence of it at all. But as we think about that, the history may be more clouded than we would have thought. And it is for that reason that this afternoon, let us start with a bit of history, at least at the beginning, and make one critical and firm affirmation at the outset. If we were to end the lesson where, in fact, the discussion of the notion of Christmas in the Bible is found, this would be the time to end it. For the Bible says nothing about Christmas. Nowhere from Genesis to Revelation is the word even found. In fact, there's a very good reason for that. As you'll notice in the brief amount of history I have on the screen to my left, on the wall to my left, 
the very word Christmas wasn't even coined until the 11th century, some thousand years after the Bible was written. And thus it would be rather shocking and surprising if one were to find the word Christmas in the Bible anywhere. The earliest reference of there being any celebration like what you and I would recognize as Christmas today came along about 336 A.D., somewhere there about a third the way through the 4th century A.D. But as one recognizes and looks upon that historical reference, though there's clearly some similarity, it's not identical to what you and I recognize today. And in fact, it may well be that the earliest traces could perhaps go back another 50 years or so to the latter part of the 200s. Even at that, though, that's 200 years after the New Testament in the inspired age of the first century was completed. And so again, we'd be shocked if we were to find the word Christmas anywhere in the Holy Word of God. But in fact, that does lead us to say something else. As one looks at the origination, it had strong ties to Rome. They were the ruling power of the time. And as various celebrations in the Roman Empire took place, History records for us that Rome, in the way that they pursued celebrations, had many, many celebrations throughout the year. This one apparently was one that fell along with another one very much like it that closed the, the current year for them. And so as one looks at it from that perspective, again, nowhere to be found in the Bible. But that's not to say that there aren't some other lessons that we might glean. Consider this one with me as well. What about the date? You and I have come accustomed to the 25th day of December as being that day on which the Christmas celebration occurs. Historically, we understand that that's pursued to be the day of Christ's birth, but as we noted earlier, it's time to ask about that more carefully and more critically. What about the day of Jesus' birth? As we can already see, since the Bible says nothing about Christmas per se, we know the Bible cannot be the one teaching that Christ's birth is to be celebrated on the 25th of December. However, along the same point as we noted earlier, remember in 336 A.D., we find that first celebration like what we would recognize as Christmas, even then it was on the 25th of December. That day accorded with another of the major Roman celebrations that ended the year, and apparently they chose that as a convenient day to have that variety or that type of celebration and joy. May we thus quickly say that the 25th of the 12th month is of human origin. The Bible does not indicate that Jesus was born on what we would say would be December 25th. In fact, all of the scriptural evidence points to the fact that it would not have been during this season of the year. For example, we read in Luke chapter 2 on that interesting scene of when Joseph and Mary had gone to Bethlehem and there she gave birth to the Christ. We might remember, though, that there were shepherds watching over their flocks in the field by night. That would be as much evidence as we might perceive that it likely was not in the deepest part of winter. It may well have been much more in the spring season of the year, apparently. But anyway, that too isn't conclusive. The point is that 1225 is not the day set aside in Scripture for the celebration, if you will, of the day of our Savior's birth. Rather than placing tremendous emphasis upon the day of Christ's birth, might we at least for a moment reflect on the fact that it was apparently the will of God 
the entire and complete will of heaven that those specific details not be given. In fact, far more details are given about his death. Far more details are given about the importance and significance and the eternal at that of the character of his death. In fact, look at some of the texts that I have listed there on the screen on the wall to my left. As you look at them there in Luke chapter 2, on the very occasion of his birth, remember the angelic host as they appeared there and sang, Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Far more of importance for the continuing belief and importance of human, humankind was the fact of the importance of his life and what that would mean. In fact, later on, do we not read in texts such as Acts 20 verse 7 that the disciples met on the first day of the week? That was a direct statement of the power and character of that day on which he arose from the grave, from the dead, in Matthew 28 verse 6. And furthermore, in 1 Corinthians 11, as you and I celebrated this morning, we do proclaim until he come again the power and beauty of his resurrection and what he suffered on the cross. As the Lord's Supper is partaken, we can then see that it was the will of heaven that some of these details we might wish we had were concealed. Could it be that that's the very reason why God did conceal it in part? Men would pay too much importance to and other matters related to the character of his birth. In fact, as we'll see in just a moment, there will be some interesting comments that humans have made and also tended to believe concerning this. To lead us to that point, consider this next idea with me. Christmas, 1225. But consider with me, there are actually some mistakes that are commonly believed as it relates to the character of the birth of our Savior. Using the Bible as our guide, you and I perhaps over the last three weeks or so have perhaps seen many nativity scenes. We have looked upon various descriptions as they may have appeared in books or articles. But isn't it interesting that concerning those nativity scenes, what do we almost always seem to see? Typically there is the baby Jesus, perhaps in a trough or a manger, maybe scattered in some hay. And around him will be the parents as well as usually three wise men on display. And furthermore, the recognition of it leads us to ask, what about the details of that? As we read Luke chapter 2 as well as Matthew chapter 1, we do seem to see the following. First, there is no indication there were three wise men. That's the first point of interest. Now we do know that there were three gifts brought. There was the gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh, but there's no indication of the number of wise men. It just is used in the plural, thus there must have been two, at least two. But perhaps that isn't even the most interesting consideration. Secondly, according to the scriptures, there were not even any wise men present at the time of Jesus' birth. Isn't that odd? The Bible, as it gives us the information about the wise men, presents that much differently. In fact, retrace it with me in your mind. Upon the time of our Savior's birth, there in that Bethlehem Inn, in that manger, if you will, we remember that the particular character of Joseph and Mary, of course, being present. But what's more, we remember that there were shepherds who had come in that very occasion, but there's no mention then about wise men. 
It is not until Matthew chapter 2 we encounter the wise men. Remember, they followed the star from the direction of the east, and they came to that very place where the star led them to the very nature of where the Christ was. But in the, in the verses that follow, Herod, remember, questioned and challenged them because they had come looking for the king of the Jews. When they were proceeding to find him, Herod had urged them, when you find him, come back and inform me so I too can come and worship. They did find the baby Jesus. But as they did, they went back another way and never, in fact, returned to Herod. But notice something. In response to that, Herod gave orders that all the baby boys in Jerusalem two years and under, or in the Bethlehem area two years and under, were to be slain. It would appear the wise men were as much as two years later after the time Jesus was born. And thus, according to the Bible, no wise men present on the very occasion there in Bethlehem when Mary gave birth to him. Well, those interesting thoughts do help us see that when we utilize the Scriptures, some of these things have, in fact, come from the mind of men. But what more could be said? In addition to the nativity scene, think about the following with me, too. It's also the case there are many in our world and in our day who use today as well as the actual day of Christmas Got one ahead on that one. Who use, in fact, Christmas as an opportunity in a time when religious services will take place. You may have heard of it on the radio already today. How that, say, in Rome or in other various cities such as either Bethlehem or Jerusalem, there will be actual gatherings not only today but even tomorrow in which religious services... Religious activities will take place, and as that is done, there will be a worshipful event, a worshipful attitude, if you will, toward God. Maybe that does, though, proceed to beg a different question. The Catholic tradition, as it relates to Christmas, we mentioned earlier, about 336 A.D., at that point the Catholic religion had already proceeded and had grown to some extent. It definitely hadn't reached its pinnacle at that instant or at that time. But as one considers the religious nature that has been cast upon the day of Christmas, let it be noted that we again do not find any record of that in the New Testament. We don't find any reference to where it's commanded for individuals to gather and worship on that day, regardless what day of the week it might be. As we know this year, Christmas falls on Monday, tomorrow. And yet, as we noted earlier, many will gather tomorrow and offer worship, if you will, to God. As all of that is considered, might we then ask, where is the authorization for that aspect of Christmas? To turn it into a religious celebration in honor of the very birth of Jesus. You and I, as those who stand firmly on it, thus saith the Lord, are desirous never to go beyond that authority as it's presented, never to, in fact, do that which is unauthorized in any sense. And yet, as some have turned that day into that very character, it would seem that that given description poses problems in the least, doesn't it? Those ideas alone seem to be extremely interesting. A moment ago we read in Galatians 4, let us revisit that text in verses 10 and 11. Galatians chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. Ye observe days 
and months and times and years. I am afraid of you, lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. This setting of the book of Galatians then was this. We understand that the churches of Galatia were those to whom Paul had written this letter. As he had come into that area and had preached the truthful character of the gospel of Christ, many had, of course, had a great interest in following and obeying it. Paul, of course, was exceedingly happy at that. But what's more, after Paul had left and moved on to other areas to continue his ministry, there were other teachers, though, who followed Paul who had come into the area of Galatia, and their doctrine had not been uncorrupted as Paul's had been. In fact, the very doctrine and the very teaching that these other teachers who were teaching was this, that these who were desirous of being pleasing to God must also follow, to a greater or lesser extent, the law of Moses. In other words, you must first be a follower of the law of Moses if you're going to be a Christian. And thus, these teachers were thus adding something to the gospel that the Lord had never stated. In fact, that old law had been nailed to the cross. He told the Colossians in Colossians 2, verse 14. And in Ephesians 2, that old law was one which had been removed or taken out of the way. And thus, to the time and again to the Galatians, Paul would remind them that circumcision does not save you today. And furthermore, this observing of days and seasons and times and years, he notes that here. Paul said, I am afraid of you. I am afraid of you, lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. Paul's fear was that in regard to these special days or special seasons, that they would proceed to again revert back to them and place their confidence and their trust in those days as though they were under the law of Moses again. When in fact we now understand too that that law of Moses was no longer binding at this time. It was no longer the law under which they were supposed to live. And thus as Paul cautioned them about this, it was the same problem to which the Colossians were subject. For in Colossians 2 verses 16 and 17, there the same subject is presented. He made mention of Sabbaths and days and years. And again the thought was Paul had to remind them. These things are not matters of your required obedience today. All of that being said, it does beg the question, what about Christians observing Christmas today? Could you and I then in our family celebrate Christmas? And would that be a violation of these passages in which we're not to observe days and times and seasons and years? Can you and I enjoy a celebration with their family and put up a tree in our house and furthermore perhaps sing carols and other things like that? Or would those be violating or transgressing some of these statements in which we are not to observe days and times and seasons and years? Well, you'll notice at the bottom, one can observe many traditions as it relates to Christmas. And I've just mentioned a few of them. The putting up of a tree and putting of various garland and other types of bushes or holly around the house. Maybe even putting up a display in the front yard. Maybe the gathering with family and taking care to observe various family traditions. Quite often the same foods are enjoyed by each of us at these seasons of the year. Quite often other things such as Santa Claus and the giving of gifts. 
and other things like that, of course, are well understood and well known. As we've noted, those, of course, are impressive traditions, been maintained for many, many decades. But returning to the issue before us, is it wrong to celebrate Christmas? Would it then be an error or opposed to the Word of God if you and I did so? We might be quick to say that there are some who have that disposition. You may have met individuals or some who, in fact, are sufficiently convinced that it is entirely improper for a person to put up a tree or to celebrate in any regular way what you and I would call Christmas. As we look into the Word of God, though, before we perhaps go to that extent, might we ask the following? What is the basis in Scripture and does the context that we've just read infer that that's what Paul was talking about? We've already hinted, in fact, made it plain that the discussion here had reference to that law being taught by those Judaizing teachers and attempting to bind that upon those Galatians. Same thing was true of the Colossians. That seems a far stretch, at least a very different context in the question we're asking today, doesn't it? In fact, could you perhaps note with me the following? For many, as Christmas indeed is a time of family, a time of enjoying a sense of warmth and togetherness, a time of binding and strengthening that bond that may exist between physical families and physical persons. Might we often say, though, that the Bible encourages a sense of warmth, doesn't it? The Scriptures encourage a sense of recognition of community and family. The Scriptures encourage a sense of loyalty and allegiance. As all of that's discussed, we cannot then force a text to teach something which the context doesn't demand. We cannot take a text and use it to teach something which by proper interpretation and rightly dividing, it does not teach. We've already noted that Christmas is nowhere referenced in the Bible. It would be no more wrong to celebrate Christmas as long as it's in a non-religious way. We would no more wrong than it would be to celebrate St. Valentine's Day or Independence Day, or any other holiday, we are not at liberty to force religious matters upon it. That would be stepping beyond the bounds of the Bible. But for a family to gather and exchange gifts, to enjoy a well-prepared and joyous meal, to bind themselves together in a sense of harmony, family, love, and community, not only does that not oppose the Scriptures, it in fact is in marvelous and beautiful harmony with it. How often did David gather in the Old Testament with those who were members of his court and family and celebrate and partake of feasts and meals together? We read on that occasion, in fact, when even Saul did that. There, Jonathan was present, Saul's son, and even David, because he was absent, Jonathan made note of the fact they will be alarmed because you aren't here. There was a sense of recognition that those that were present would be benefited thereby. The character of all that found in 1 Samuel chapter 20 helps us remember too that when you and I enjoy that strength that we gain perhaps one from another, be it on a day like Christmas or on any other day of the year, that is not opposed to the nature of the Word of God. In fact, could it not be said that those who are bereft of such blessing are in fact the ones that are shortchanged. For a child to perhaps grow up in an environment in which he or she never comes to know that warmth 
of a family that gathers at Christmas or on some other day, or that exchanging of pleasantries and the shining spirit of a face and the smile thereon at the time of the Christmas season, or the joyful looking forward to the appearance of seeing that man dressed in red and white. Perhaps all that is a challenging thing as we see what good may redound from it as long as we do not step beyond the bounds of Scripture in our celebration of it. The world itself, of course, has been benefited in many ways by the nature of Jesus Christ. In fact, could we not say that He literally transformed everything? Nothing before was the same as it was after our Savior came. I think we've already noted, perhaps in a Bible study a few weeks back, but maybe it's worth saying again. As we think about the influence of Jesus... And as we think about what He has meant maybe to each of us and our own families and the recognition of our own personal salvation through Him, think about His influence upon the world. A very noble and perhaps very wise person once said that all the armies that ever marched and all the navies that ever sailed and all the parliaments that ever sat and all the kings that ever reigned have not affected life upon this earth as much as the single, solitary one born in Bethlehem. And to that we each could say a hearty amen. Today we understand that though December 25th is not taught in the Bible as the day of his birth, though December 25th is not taught as a required day of observance for you and me, we can perhaps see the benefits that are brought to those who do cherish the nature of His coming and who appreciate until this day in their own life the strength that He has brought. To say all that is perhaps to say that it's nothing improper or unscriptural about the observing of Christmas as long as, again, we do not extend to it greater influence than we should and as long as we do not turn it into a strictly religious observance. Today, I suppose the question then is we think about the meaning of Christmas. Let us year-round remember that Christ is the center of it all. We even date our time by Him, don't we? In fact, this is the year 2006 A.D. That letter, that two le- those two letters A.D. means Anno Domini in the year of our Lord. Even our time is dated by Him. In fact, as we close the lesson this afternoon, I would ask that you remember one other text with me. In the very last book in the Bible, Revelation chapters 4 and 5, we encounter a scene which perhaps has mesmerized us and caused us to ponder and to think. If we might briefly recount some of the events of that chapter, it went like this. On that occasion, we remember that the greatness of God was presented as He sat upon a great white throne. And as He sat upon that throne, there was a book in His right hand. The book was sealed seven times. And it was so full of writing, it was stated to be on the front and the back. As we remember that, though, chapter 5 opens by saying that John began to weep because no one in heaven or earth was deemed worthy to take that book and to loose the seals and to release its contents. Nobody. And finally, one of the elders comforted John by saying, Weep not, for the Lion of the tribe of Judah hath prevailed and is worthy to loose the seals and open the book. That Lion, L-I-O-N, of the tribe of Judah was none other than the blessed Savior. He is that one that takes away the sin of the world, that Lamb. And so, as we consider the meaning of that, is it not this? 
He took the book, loosed the seals, released the contents. Time has no meaning without Jesus. Everything revolves about Him. You take Jesus out of history, it loses its meaning. No history, no historical element has significance and meaning in the eternal scheme without Christ in it. Without Jesus, the book couldn't be opened. And in my life and yours today, without the Savior, there's no point to my life or yours. Ultimately, what time is here upon earth will fade into meaninglessness this afternoon. What about yourself and mine? Your life and mine? Are you a Christian? Have you had your sins washed in the blood of the one whom we've discussed today? This Jesus of Nazareth. History records for us He came. He was here, there's no doubt about it. Not only was He here though, He died. He gave His life. As He gave that life, He was buried and He rose. And in that rising, He triumphed over death and gives you and me the same opportunity and power to also triumph over death. This, this afternoon, if you're not a member of the church, if you haven't had your sins washed away in that fashion, then think seriously about your condition. And as you think about that, understand that Jesus pleads for you to come and be with Him. He said, if, unless you believe that I am He, you shall die in your sins. He furthermore stated that you and I must repent of our sins and confess His name as our Savior and be buried with Him in baptism. If we could assist you in doing that, how honorable it be and how good for you. But not only that, if you need to come back to your first love, we'd be happy to pray with you and for you. And if we could assist you in any way to do that, let us do that even now while together we stand and while we sing.